and welcome to Chi Alpha. Thank you so much to SAF Creative Team for helping us with our worship tonight in recording. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed tonight's message. I'm going to open us in prayer and we can jump right in. Lord, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for just this opportunity to still meet despite being apart. Lord, we pray that you would just speak to us through this message and that it would resonate with each one of us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey there, guys. How you doing? Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus and what that looks like for us in our everyday life as we reach the lost world. Lost world. Jurassic Park. Jesus is like a Tyrannosaurus Rex because Rex in the Latin means king. And Jesus is king. No, okay. We're not gonna do it. Okay, we're not gonna do that. Okay. <laughs> it's so bad. I can't even do it. So we have to look at what the word disciple actually means. And it's not a word that's very common in today's language. I know that so many times I've typed the word discipling into my phone and it just autocorrects to discipline. Maybe my phone's trying to tell me that there's no discipling without discipline. That's good. That one's for free. You can write that one down. But the fact that my phone doesn't recognize this word is really important. I think this tells us something about our society that the word discipling as a verb isn't even recognized by my phone. Let's look up what it means in the dictionary. The definition of disciple as a verb, it says it's archaic to convert into a disciple. Okay, that doesn't really help us. It says another is obsolete, to teach or to train. Makes sense why my phone doesn't like the word. It says it's archaic and obsolete. So what does that mean for us? This is so important because words matter so much. The fact that this verb is now seen as archaic and obsolete tells us the key secret to the problem with the world today. And here's the thing, I don't believe that this word is actually as archaic or obsolete as its definition leads us to believe. Imagine this, it's 1996, I'm four years old, Michael Jordan has just come back from a two-year hiatus from playing baseball for some reason, and he's about to win the fifth championship for the Chicago Bulls. I'm in the orange room, and I've got a bunch of other four-year-olds with me, and I'm telling them the stats and the starting lineup for the Chicago Bulls. I'm four years old, and I can tell you the height and weight of every Bulls player where they went to college, their points, their rebounds, their assists, their steals. And my teacher pulls me aside. Her name is Miss Blake, and she has a snake. Like, this is a real person. She's like Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus. She pulls me aside, and she says, Ryan, you're the biggest Bulls fan that I've ever met. I've got all the other four-year-olds actually caring about something for more than two seconds at a time. Somehow, I'm discipling these four-year-olds into being Bulls fans. Now, this is something that's remarkable to think about. I wasn't realizing that I was doing this, but the discipleship was taking place. Flash forward, it's the summer of 1998. Chicago Cubs are going to maybe make the playoffs for the first time in my short life. My dad and I are watching Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire chase after Roger Maris's 61 home run record. And I'm so excited. I'm five and a half years old, and I'm calculating ERA and batting average as the players come up to bat. And my dad and I are watching in amazement as Sosa and McGuire hit home run after home run and break Roger Maris's record. My dad is watching me and he's discipling me to become a Cubs fan. And this is something that stuck with me my whole life. Again, we flash forward and I'm hanging out with my friend Stuart. And Stuart and I would go over to each other's house all the time. We spent a lot of time together in my childhood. And we would play games and we would read books together and go on adventures. But one of the things that Stuart taught me how to do was to play chess. I had never played chess before, I never cared about chess, but because I hung out with Stuart and he was really smart, he showed me how to play chess, he beat me more often than not, but he taught me how to play that game and to love that game. So hanging out with Stuart and his family, we ate a lot of pizza, okay? It's the Midwest, you gotta eat pizza pretty much all the time. And when his family and I would eat pizza, we would often have little carrot sticks and ranch. But by the end of the time when I'm eating pizza, I've gotta dip it in the ranch. By the time I moved to Texas, proved really useful because in Texas, 
Ranch is like king. You may say that's something small, but it did stick with me. Then in sixth grade, I'm in language arts class with Mrs. Castles. Mrs. Castles' job as a language arts teacher in sixth grade is to get us to actually care about reading. She's trying to get us to actually read books and actually learn how to write. And this is something that she loved dearly and it showed. She had a whole wall of books in her classroom and we got to pick one out once a week. And it was something that I looked forward to as a little introvert who didn't want to talk to people. And so I always loved grabbing books off her shelf and she cultivated in me a love of learning and reading. So much so that I remember in the summer that our librarian, Mrs. Schur, saw me outside one day. She said, Ryan, do you do anything other than read books? And this is a woman whose job it is to get kids to love reading. She saw how much I loved reading and she said, do you even do anything else but this? And that just showed that Mrs. Castles cultivated a love in me of reading. She discipled me to love reading and writing. And that's something that has stuck with me forever. And you can say that these people were just teaching me. I was teaching the other four-year-olds about the Bulls. My dad was teaching me to love baseball. Stuart taught me how to play chess and enjoy ranch. Mrs. Castles taught me how to love reading and writing. But the word teaching doesn't have the same weight as discipling. Things that are discipled into people stick with them. Sometimes things that I'm taught stick with me, but sometimes I just forget those things as soon as I take the test. Discipleship is lasting and permanent. Whether we are intentional or not, discipleship is taking place in our lives. We are forming habits that are influenced by our family, our friends, and our society as a whole. Let's look at scripture for an example of this. We're gonna look at Daniel chapter one, starting in verse three. So Daniel is under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. In this passage, we see Daniel stand up for his convictions. He's not willing to compromise by eating the king's royal food and wine. A war for the character of the individual and a war for the character of the culture. But our culture is constantly being discipled one way or another. Patterns and habits are forming on a societal scale for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. Our society is swayed to and fro. And this is vital for us to understand. There are two ways to disciple a culture, the world's way and God's way. And we see the world's way here in Daniel, represented by the kingdom of Babylon and its ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. The world's way to disciple the culture in the kingdom of Babylon was to celebrate compromise. They worshiped intelligence and beauty and talent. And this is why Nebuchadnezzar is asking for only the best and brightest Israelites to be brought before him. We live in a world that celebrates compromise and tolerance, a world that worships intelligence and beauty and talent. G.K. Chesterton says this, that tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. But we see here that Daniel refuses to compromise. He does not give up his convictions and instead asks for favor to not have to eat the king's food and drink his royal wine. Daniel understood the important truth that we were made to disciple our culture not to sit back and let the culture disciple us. We were made to go out and make disciples, 
to be fruitful and multiply. Every society that has ever tried to rely upon its leaders or its laws or a religious mediator to shape and disciple its culture has always ended up in flames. Often literally. Here's looking at you, Nero. When asked about the problems of the leaders of her day, Mother Teresa responded by saying, Of the twelve disciples handpicked by Jesus himself, one turned out to be a crook and the other eleven ran away. How can we expect our own leaders to be any different? Here's the thing. So often we have strong opinions about these big, grandiose global issues. And we should care about these things and we should care about the state of the world. But the harsh reality is the vast majority of us have little to no personal influence on these large-scale matters. But where I do have a heavy influence is on how I treat my wife and how I treat my family and my friends and my coworkers and the guy at Taco Bell who knows my order before I walk in. These are the people that I have real influence with. And if I neglect them by trying to stretch my sphere of influence and weigh in on matters that are really not where my focus should be, I'll actually lose the influence that I do have with those around me. They'll see that my focus and my time and my attention are spent out there and not right here with those that I love. And I'll lose them. I will be guilty of doing the very thing that we've been warning against. I will have let the world reach me and disciple me instead of me reaching and discipling the world. Karl Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And I would amend his statement to say that culture is the opiate of the masses. We often look around and we see the state of things and, and that dictates how we feel and how we think and how we act and how we talk. We let our circumstances control our convictions or our compromises. Oh, well, it's okay for me to do this thing because look at how bad it is out there. Oh, I had such a hard day. I, I earned this thing. I, I know it's wrong, but I can justify it because I had a hard day. I've said these things. I'm sure you've heard these things said as well. You see how easily and how insidiously the culture can cause us to give in to the king's food and his wine just like the Babylonian culture of compromise. Let's look at the rest of Daniel's story to see what happens. Picking up in verse 9, Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who had eaten the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. We see from this passage that if we give in to the culture, we'll be less strong and less healthy than Daniel and company who stood strong in their convictions. It isn't the job of our culture to fix our problems. Instead, we must take full personal responsibility for the things that we have influence with. When he was asked what was wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton said this, I am, I am the problem with the world, yours truly. And he took a personal responsibility to fix that problem by being discipled 
and trained to look more and more like the character of Jesus. Earlier we said that there are two ways to disciple a culture, the world's way and God's way. Well, God's way to disciple a culture effectively is first to disciple the individual. So this is God's plan to effectively disciple our culture and ultimately our world. You see, God does not take the talented and put them up on a pedestal and say, you have to be like them. He takes your heart personally and he tests it. And this is true discipleship. God's design is for personal discipleship. And this is why his first command to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. God didn't tell them to be fruitful and multiply because they needed to be good Christians or they needed to up their spiritual game because they already were good and there was no sin in the world. God simply wanted them to share the good that they had with the rest of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to disciple. And this is the method of Jesus as well. He walked along the shores of the Jordan River and he simply said, come, follow me. His method was to personally disciple a group of people and entrust them to be fruitful and multiply the kingdom of God here on earth. And this is exactly what he did. The Roman society in Jesus' time was far from perfect, but he didn't attempt to remedy it by calling together all of the leaders and the social media influencers of the day and get them together in the public forum. You see, he, he chose a group of lowly laborers to come alongside him and live life with him, being taught and transformed and discipled in the process. As he was nearing the end of his earthly life, Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And this love for one another was something that really struck me when I first began to walk with Jesus. I came to college at Sam Houston State University and I saw a group of people that were unlike any I'd ever seen before. They really truly loved one another and that was how I knew they were disciples of Jesus. I saw the way they treated their roommates and the way they handled stresses when people didn't do dishes. I saw the way they talked to their mom on the phone and how they really talked with love. That was something that stuck with me. When Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another, that was something I personally witnessed, and that was what helped win me into the kingdom of God. Now, before we go and put Descartes before the horse, in order for us to truly love one another as Jesus commands, we must be personally transformed. We must confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. Because discipleship is not just a process. It is also a decision. It is a decision to walk with Jesus, to give up our old selves, to die to our old selfish ways, and begin to walk with Jesus. And this is a key step that is so often neglected in contemporary times, that we must repent of our sins and we must allow ourselves to be born again. The very first word that Jesus says when he starts his ministry is repent. And he pointed to his cousin, John the Baptist, who's preaching the exact same message and says, None has been born of man greater than him. Repentance must be the first step. Otherwise, we'll have nothing more than a counterfeit conversion. Maybe some behavior modifications will occur, but no real transformation will take place. We must repent of our sins and give up our old selfish ways and come humbly to the foot of the cross. There, Jesus will clothe us in his righteousness. He'll take us under his wing and say, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make you white as snow. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. That God sent his only son to die for us so that we can have everlasting life with him. The first step of our personal discipleship journey is actually a step down to kneel before Jesus at the cross. If you're listening to this right now and you've never publicly confessed your sins before God and declared that Jesus is Lord, please, please stop watching this video because that is the most important thing that you can ever do. The rest of this video is meaningless if you've not yet done that. Because Jesus is Lord of all, and he desires that none shall perish. He invites us to partake in this discipleship process 
so that he can have those whom he so magnificently deserves. And that is why we as Christians do what we do. You see, discipleship is not something that we add on to what we do. It is just what we do. Every Christian is called to disciple. There are no exceptions. So now that we know what it means to be a disciple, what are some characteristics of disciples? What are some practical steps that we can live out so that we look more and more like Jesus? The first thing for us to understand is that disciples live by faith. Many of us know that verse from Hebrews that's so easy for us to recite, but so hard to live out. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. You see, Daniel showed us this kind of faith in the passage by him trusting God even under the potential penalty of death. Daniel didn't know exactly what the next step would look like, but he acted out of faith and obedience to God. Also, living by faith does not mean that we expect God to keep us from every trial and tribulation. Jesus himself told us that, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus faced every kind of scorn and betrayal and ridicule that can be imagined, and then he was hung on a cross to die. So why should we expect anything different for us? If Jesus himself was not free from trials, why should we, following in his footsteps, expect anything different? We must have faith that God will be with us in the trials of life, not that he will take us out of them. If you read further on in the story of Daniel, you'll see that things get a little heated for him and his buddies. But you'll see that Jesus appears with them in the midst of the fire. We must have faith in God and his word, and we must pray constantly for others. The second point to live as a true disciple of Jesus is to live intentionally. What I mean by living intentionally is that the disciples live life on purpose. They intentionally go out of their way to welcome others and invite others into the community. About eight years ago, before I was even really walking with Jesus yet, my friend Josh pointed to someone else in the cafeteria and said, hey, go talk to that guy. And I did not want to do that, but I did it. I went over there and I talked to him and his name was Daniel. And that moment of me stepping out of my comfort zone and going out to talk to Daniel, even though I didn't want to, started an incredible friendship that has lasted through the years. Daniel and I began to walk with Jesus together, and we began to disciple one another, and we grew closer and closer to Jesus as we spent more time together, all because I decided to be intentional and go out and talk to him. If I had never taken that first step, Daniel and I would have never become friends. If I hadn't decided to live intentionally, if I can explain being intentional another way, is that we must live in the light of eternity. We aren't just talking about earthly friendships here, but we're talking about eternity being at stake. And that's what I mean by living intentionally, just living in the light of eternity in everything that you do. The third and final point to live as a true disciple of Jesus is that disciples live to reproduce. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear fruit and your fruit will remain. And that's what I mean by disciples live to reproduce. We were made to be fruitful and multiply. It started in Genesis and it's still going to this day. Dawson Trotman said this, I don't care how much you're working for Christ. I want to know how much you're producing for Christ. You see, the devil wants to get us busy with spiritual activity so that we don't have any real spiritual productivity. Dawson Trotman went on to say this, If you play in the worship band at church, that's great. But where's your man? Where's your woman? Your talent is no substitute for being fruitful. And that sounds harsh, but he's merely echoing what Jesus has asked us to do already, to bear fruit and to bear lasting fruit that will remain. Trotman used the phrase soul winner when describing a discipler. And he went on to say this, that soul winners are not soul winners because of what they know, but because of whom they know, how well they know him, and how much they long for others to know him. And this is so key for us. We must have compassion for the lost lambs of Jesus to be returned to him. And the question that we must ultimately ask ourselves 
is, am I a true disciple of Jesus? So we've looked at the definition of disciple and saw that although its usage as a verb is archaic and obsolete, we can see evidence in all of our lives and our culture that discipleship is still constantly taking place, for better or for worse. And then we looked at scripture and saw the story of Daniel and how he and his friends stood strong in their convictions. And because of that, they were not discipled by the culture of Babylon, but instead they gained greater wisdom and influence than any of Babylon's own leaders. And then we talked about how we must repent of our sins and come humbly to Jesus with him as Lord and Savior in order for us to be truly discipled. And then, and only then, must we go out and disciple others, honoring God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And Jesus reiterates God's command from Genesis in the New Testament. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he says this, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age." And this command from Jesus helps us to understand that the ultimate purpose for disciples is to find, feed, and fight for the lost lambs of God. And lastly, we talked about three ways that a true disciple should live. We said that disciples live by faith, disciples live intentionally, and disciples live to reproduce. Now, if you've been around our community even a little bit, you've heard us talk about the three R's. The three R's are three things that every Christian should actively have in their life. Real reading or a real devotional life full of prayer and reading God's word. The second of these is real relationships or being true intentional friends with those who are around us. And the third one of these is real responsibility or taking responsibility for others as we all grow closer and closer to look more and more like Jesus. Now, the astute listener today will notice that the three points that we talked about here for true discipleship, living by faith, living intentionally, and being born to reproduce are just the three R's. We said we wanted real reading or a real devotional life. Well, when you live by faith, and you're praying and trusting the word of God, that's real reading, that's a real devotional life. And when you're living intentionally, you're forming real relationships and really loving one another. We must remember that love is a choice. And when we have real relationships with people, it necessitates that we live intentionally because discipleship doesn't happen on accident. And when we live to reproduce, we're going to have real responsibility for others as we understand the weight of what it means to walk closer to Jesus together. So as you walk away from this video, I would hope that you ask yourself, am I living as a true disciple of Jesus Christ? If the answer is no, will you give God the space, the time, and the authority to change your heart on these things? And are you practicing these things daily? Are you praying for the people in your life? Are you spending time in the Word of God? And are you reaching out to others and inviting them into your community? And as we think about these things, just remember, we love you guys, we're praying for you, and we can't wait to meet again soon.